Today's show is sponsored by ObservePoint. That moment when executives, peers, competitors are questioning the data analysts and scientists reports, their job and credibility are in question. ObservePoint gives data professional confidence in their data and insights by automatically auditing your data collection for errors across the entire website, testing your most important pages and user paths for functionality and accurate data collection, alerting you immediately when something goes wrong, tracking your data quality and QA process over time. You can request a demo at www.observepoint.com forward slash analytics today to learn more about ObservePoint's full data governance capability. Again, that website is www.observepoint.com forward slash analytics today. Thank you for joining Analytics Today, a podcast series that focuses on big data and analytics and the latest trends in the digital world. I'm your co-host, Jeremy Roberts, and with me always is Samir Khan. What's up, Samir? Hey, Jeremy. How's it going? It's still hot. Um, I know. You know, we're both down here in Texas, and it's almost the end of August, and I feel like I could cook an egg on the top of my car. It's, it's, it's hot. Uh, kids are back at school. That's fantastic. Um, you know, the holidays are already coming. I, I've seen, I went to Target the other day and I saw that the Christmas lights and Christmas stuff was already available. And I'm sitting oh, my thinking, God. They're going to start <laughs> taking our money very early this year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, it's exciting. We actually, uh, to use that as a segue, we actually have a great guest on today. It's a Christmas present for us. We have Captain Hoff, a.k.a. Steve Hoffman, on today. So, Steve, welcome to the Analytics Today podcast. Fantastic to be here. Fantastic. So let me let me give uh, the personal intro, make Steve blush a little bit. We're going to kind of talk about all the things that Steve's done. Um, and, you know, if, if we're embellishing a little bit too much, I, I would say just too bad. You know, it's one of those things. We're going to talk about your accolades. So we'll go from there. Um, so Steve Hoffman, Captain Hoff, is the captain and CEO at Founderspace. So one of the world's leading startup accelerators. So Founderspace was ranked the number one, so everybody listen, the number one incubator for overseas startups by Forbes and Entrepreneur Magazine. So if you're number one by those two magazines, this is the real deal, BFD, right? This is the real deal. We're not screwing around here. So if you're listening, okay, spend the next 45 minutes listening to what we're going to be talking about. Okay, let me keep going. Uh, Captain Hoff is also a venture investor, serial entrepreneur, and author of several award-winning books. Uh, these include Make Elephants Fly and uh, published by Hachet. Is that correct, Steve? Hachette. Hachette. Ah. Mm. Okay, I almost got it this time. Um, Surviving a Startup, published by HarperCollins. Uh, the Five Forces. Everybody knows the five. If you guys don't know the five forces, there's a problem. Go back to school. Um Right, published yeah, by Fundamentals. Ben, yeah, fundamentals. Ben Bella, right? Yeah. Hoffman was founder and chairman of the Producers Guild Silicon Valley chapter, served on the board of governors on the New Media Council, and was a founding member of the Academy of Television's Interactive Media Group. And I'm sure this is the shortened, condensed version. So we'll yes. just we'll, we'll, we'll kind of we'll kind of go with that. So this is an absolute pleasure. We're going to start off with the best question of all. Um, so question number one, Steve, is you know, you've had this interesting journey, but most people don't know about your journey, right? So what we'd love to do is we have listeners that are span the scope from young to old. We have people in their teens, people in their twenties who are sitting there thinking, why am I not successful already? You know, I'm starting this journey, what's going on? And, but your journey's done a lot of different things. You've done different professions, different types of jobs, and it's not linear. So I'm asking you a multi-pronged question, right? Tell us about this amazing journey, what inspired or motivated your career, and tell us about these touch points, because I think it's important for people to understand it's not linear. You know, it, it takes a while to get there. So please enlighten us. I want to tell everybody out there, all your listeners, okay. if you feel like you're off on a tangent, that is fine, because my whole life has been one giant tangent. <laughs> Nice. I, I like to say I've had more careers than cats have had lives. 
So I've been, my bio didn't even <laughs> great touch advice. on it. I've been a manga rewriter for comic books. I've been an animation director. I've been a voice actor. I've been an electrical computer engineer. I've been, you know, it goes on and on, a game designer. And now, uh, and I've also been a serial entrepreneur with three venture funded companies that I did out of Silicon Valley. And now I'm a venture investor and the CEO of Founderspace, a global incubator. So I encourage everybody, follow your passions. That is what I have done. And it has led me astray many times, but on those journeys, I learned so much and it made me what I am today. Interesting. So I, I guess, uh, you know, and I'll, let, let's keep going on this before we get to the next question, because I think, I, I think I want our listeners to get a little bit more insight into those journeys is was, was there motivation points to jump from one type of career to the other? Was it, and, and I'm, I guess I'm maybe speaking out of my extended personality, but was it the fact that you didn't feel like that you accomplished enough? Did was it boredom? Were you just curious? Uh, did you have a really bad manager that said, "Steve, you you're not, you shouldn't be doing this. Go do something else." Right? Uh, what what happened? How did you jump? Well, I before I answer that, I just want to say I forgot a couple of my careers okay. to add. So I was also. <laughs> A screenwriter in Hollywood and okay. a Hollywood television development executive. So, so you have an nice. IMDb page? An IMDb page? Well, you can go check. I don't think so. Okay. okay. <laughs> because, and I will tell you, um, you know, some of my careers went great. Some didn't go great. So my screenwriting career was brief. I had uh, several pieces optioned, but mm -hmm. they didn't get made. Right. Mm -hmm. And that was very frustrating, you know, being in Hollywood. But I did work in, I worked my way up in the industry in the business side, like doing business, you know, choosing which projects are greenlit and everything else. And, you know, every experience was unique and each one was a challenge. And you asked, you know, did, why did I change so many times? Mm -hmm. Well, some of the times like screenwriting, I changed because I got frustrated. Like my screenplays aren't getting made. Am I going to sit here in my basement and write these screenplays forever? Um, other times... And the majority of time, I actually changed because I wanted a new challenge. I am a very uh, attention deficit disorder guy. And I always run after like whatever I feel like will be the most interesting thing I could do with my time, with my life. And so I kept changing. I was in Hollywood for a while and I was doing extremely well. But then I met at the time, the founder of the game company, Sega. I don't mm -hmm. know if you know oh, Sega. Yeah. I love it. This was the 90s, and they had just surpassed Nintendo to become the number one video game company in the world. And the founder said, we want to bring somebody from Hollywood over to Japan to help us come up with new ideas. So Pretty in cool. this case, I said, absolutely. I'm there. I've never been to Japan. I'll go do <laughs> it. So I left my job, and the people, my boss at the production company is a very famous guy. He couldn't believe I was giving up on this Hollywood thing. And I went to Japan, amazing experience working in a Japanese company. I was the only foreigner. But again, mm -hmm. after a year being there, only a year, I got the itch to make my own games. I was like, I could do this myself. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. why am I working for this big company, this Japanese conglomerate, when I could just do it myself? So I moved back to my home, which is the Bay Area, San Francisco, and I launched my own game company and that began my entrepreneurial career. So every twist and turn was just actually almost all of them were something more exciting than what I was doing. So, so, so with regards to that, uh, Steve, and, you know, sometimes like especially millennials and now Generation Zs, when these, uh, when these audiences are coming to the professional streams and they're looking for new opportunities, and sometimes you see like in, in the older days, you know, when you're the boomer generation, some, someone used to go in one job, they used to stay there for their entire life. Now, job hopping, job switching is pretty normal. How do you, like, like you know, trying to, trying to wrap around my mind, how do you envision someone like you, you're a smart guy, you figured it out, you were able to do it. But there may be other guy who we think like, oh, maybe I'm going to go replicate Steve and start switching jobs. Like what, what is the advice that you would give? Like at what point of time you should just pause and say, oh, maybe I found my itch or maybe this is it. Yeah. Even though I have multiple passion, I just found it. How, how do you, what's your recommendation there? If you love what you're doing, 
if you feel like you're growing in your current job and you're learning and it's a, and you're with a great team, why leave? There's no reason. Like for me, I am always, I'm the type, I'm a voracious uh, consumer of everything new, all new information, all new ideas. So for my personality, I always feel like, oh, I could be learning more. I could be doing something else. And that's just me. If you're not that type of person, which I think the majority of people aren't, you, why not stick with your job if you're happy? That's my answer. Okay. Makes sense. Well, very good. That's good. And in, uh, you alluded a little bit to the founder space. And, and I know there are multiple, uh, there are so many different incubators, uh, startup accelerators, and you name it. Like, how do you guys differentiate? Like, how do you stand up and, you know, becoming a number one force in this whole startup world? What is the, what is the drive? What is the USP? What is the value proposition here? Well, let me say that I finally found the perfect job for myself because my job is literally to be ADD. I have to go out and engage with all awesome. these different companies, get deep into what they're doing, try to figure it out, share my knowledge with them, learn from them, and then move on to the next company. You know, what we mm -hmm. do is we bring in young startups, you know, entrepreneurs with their startups, and we help them figure it out. We help them figure out their business model, their business plan, their investor pitch, help them raise capital, go to market, all those things. In founder space, you know, I actually didn't start it as a company. I started it as a hobby. Like I was helping my friends out. I'd done three venture funded startups in Silicon Valley. My friends started to come to me and my nickname is Captain Hoff. It was my gamer's handle. I was making all these games. They're like, Captain Hoff, help me with my business plan. Introduce me to investors. So I started to do that. And along the way, as we were doing that, more and more people kept coming to me. And I would start writing about these experiences on my blog, which I called Founder Space. And eventually that blog turned into a startup incubator. We got our own space in San Francisco. And the way we differentiated ourselves was a couple of things. You know, there are a lot of startup incubators, especially now. But when we mm -hmm. were starting, it was over a decade ago. So there were far fewer. You know, there's Y Combinator yeah. and 500 startups and Founder Space and some others. So it wasn't as crowded. But still, we found our niche in that at first we were just focused on Silicon Valley startups. But then all the, we started meeting all these entrepreneurs from all over the globe who were coming to Silicon Valley to get the Silicon Valley magic. And a lot of them needed a different type of program. Like they wanted to land on the ground and start running fast. Like they didn't have the money to stay for three months or six months. They wanted to figure out if Silicon Valley was a good fit for them within a month. And so we mm -hmm. started doing more condensed programs, specially designed for all these entrepreneurs some of them were coming from different parts of the US and Canada, but lots of them were coming from Africa and Asia and Europe and you name it, they were, they were coming here. And we ran these programs. And then as we were doing that, we got a reputation as like the place to go for, you know, especially if you're from overseas. And we started to branch out. We made all these relationships around the world. And then we started to partner with overseas incubators in all these different countries. So we'd like send our instructors and our teams over to South Korea to train entrepreneurs, to Taiwan, to different parts of Europe. And we even began setting up our own founder space branded incubators all across China. So we have them in six major Chinese cities right now. Nice. And it, it's been an incredible experience. So and what's, what's the, oh, what, go for it, Samir. Yeah. And I was going to say, what's the criteria for someone to be selected by founder space? If I'm a startup, what do you, what do you guys look at me? Well, we have different types of programs. Okay. So some, some of the programs, we don't even select you. We partner with different mm. governments around the world. Really? They select what they think are their very best startups to come overseas. And okay. then we bring them into our program and like give them a crash course in Silicon Valley and introduce them to investors, everything they need. Gotcha. In other cases, we have our own accelerator programs. And in those, we, we will, may put in money, invest in the startups. We definitely put in a lot of resources when the startups come. So in that case, we're very selective. So we, uh, you know, it's maybe, you know, one or two out of a hundred applications that we let into those programs because essentially we're investing in them, our time and our money. And uh, if they don't pay off, we don't get anything. So we really want to pick startups that have a reasonable chance of succeeding, but still need help to get to that next level. Okay. Interesting. So one of, one of the things I want to do, and I like to do this on our podcast is 
is to def- to make sure that our audience understands what the difference is between certain types of businesses. Um, we've heard the term incubator. We've heard the term accelerator. Uh, we know that there's ec- private equity companies, um, just series investors. A lot of times people just go with the flow and, and they start using this jargon, but they don't really know what they're talking yeah, about. Yeah, they interchange it and not knowing <laughs> they, exactly what they're talking about. I'd love to get your definition, Steve. I'm in the industry. Okay. And I will tell you, half the people cannot tell the difference between an incubator and an accelerator, but awesome. I will tell you the difference. <laughs> so you're not alone and your listeners aren't alone. Okay. It, and, and it varies from country to country, which makes it extremely confusing. But in the US, an incubator tends to be, they start at an earlier stage. So they're kind of just the team and an idea. And the incubator itself may put in uh, money into developing it and even staffing it up. And is there an MVP? Is there an MVP or is it not necessarily in an incubator? An accelerator by its name, by the definition takes an existing entity that clearly has an MVP or a product already in the market Mm -hmm. and accelerates them, gets them going faster. So in the programs where we're very selective and making investments um, and introducing them to our investor network, that is, those are really accelerator programs. Although People use the terms interchangeably. In a lot of the educational programs we run, where we don't, you know, we're really focused on educating them and, you know, helping connect them with our network, that tends to be earlier stage startups. That tends to be more incubation. So we do both. Mm-hmm. Got it. And in, in the in the let's say if you have a lean canvas defined, but not necessarily a company formed or an MVP, then you be part of the incubator, not, not for the accelerator, right? Exactly. Okay. And then you have to combine this with co-working space. And like in China, a lot of incubators are actually just co-working spaces. They're spaces where you can go and rent, you know, all the startups rent yeah. space, yeah, yeah, but yeah. they don't provide any education or very little. Interesting. Gotcha. Okay. In your book, uh, you talk about the, the book uh, Makes Elephant Fly. You argue that the innovation as growing at an exponential rate instead of a linear rate. And I, I kind of tend to agree with that. Although my caveat to that is how do you factor in all these uh, macroeconomic factors, such as pandemics, political crisis, depleting resources on our planet, uh, uh, you know, and anything that's, you know, the Paris Agreement, uh, the green factors and all of this, how do you take that into consideration that slows down the innovation or impacts the innovation, at least taking a few steps back? How do you think about that? So innovation itself, um, it takes many forms. And what we're seeing is innovation usually meets demand, pent up demand. So in the marketplace where there's a real demand for something, some entrepreneur will come by and they will say, oh, I could take this technology and this technology and this idea, put them together and meet this demand, solve the problem, make something of real value. So that's what innovators do. They don't invent products. Like they actually usually take different pieces of technology and figure out how to apply them to market problems. So uh, that's the definition of innovation. In terms of our society with all the pandemic and climate change, all these things, they actually drive innovation because they are problems that need to be solved, like the pandemic, right? We're all on Zoom now because, you know, and Zoom just exploded. And along with Zoom, a lot of other services, remote work services, all sorts of remote health services, Mm -hmm. people have been innovating like crazy. So did the pandemic stifle innovation or did it cause innovation? Well, it definitely channeled innovation into certain areas. You see that with climate change and, you know, things like that, you know, innovation, we need innovators to solve these problems. We need climate change. I mean, I'm from California, you know, I'm a California native. This state is burning. Like the entire state is like going up in flames. It's insanity what we're doing to the planet. We need the young people and the old people, everybody to get on board and start innovating to solve these problems. Does is has innovation slowed down? I would argue, and it depends how you define innovation, but I would argue very strongly that innovation is accelerating. And I would tell you why. It Well, throughout history, it's been accelerating. And what has caused it to accelerate is increased communication and collaboration. So the exchange of ideas, the exchange of technology, the exchange of goods, the ex, you know monetary exchanges, all of these systems that we put into place fuel innovation. And we saw it, you know, if you go back a thousand years ago in the dark ages, innovation was very slow. Not Mm -hmm. much was changing within, you know, a decade or two, like things were pretty much the same. 
you come now and you look a decade back, my goodness, like, you know, we, you, it, it's another world, you know, first we have the internet, then we have the, all the whole mobile revolution. Now people are going to Mars and, you know, it just keeps going. We have blockchain, everything keeps changing. And I argue that it will change faster because the more we get connected, the more intelligent systems, AI and all these other systems that we bring on board into this internet to actually uh, allow us to communicate and collaborate better, remote collaboration like we're doing right now on Zoom, mm -hmm. all of these things fuel innovation. And we're just, and these things aren't static. You know, next year we'll have a new tool that might blow Zoom away, right? You know, yeah. some AI driven platform or virtual platform that we're all in. In the year after that, we'll have another thing and another thing. We'll eventually bring computer interfaces. So we don't need these darn laptops and, and smartphones. We'll just think and our brains will be plugged into the internet. Boom, you know, another exponential leap for, for connectivity of the human mind and all the machines, intelligent machines and, and, and processes we are building on this planet. Yeah, I love, I love the fact that you mentioned that the innovation, you know, a lot of people, again, have a misconception about the innovation. They think about innovation is coming up with something new. What in the beginning part of uh, when you were describing uh, the innovation, you said that the innovation is actually a collection of ideas and sharing of information in the right way so that it creates a new channel, a new dimension of an existing platform. I, I love the fact. Can you give a specific example of, uh, you know, kind of distinction between creation of a new technology versus an innovation? What, what, what has come to your mind when you think about that? So there's R&D, research and development, which is done in universities, big corporations, you know, institutions, governments are funding these things. You know, developing a new piece of technology, it can take a short time if it's relatively simple or incremental, but if it's like a core technology, it can take decades. I mean, you look at the internet itself, you know, people were connecting computer. It took a long time, decades before it exploded. Like all the right pieces had to be in place. You look at uh, literally artificial intelligence. It's been around for what, more than 50, uh, half a century, more than half a century. And then, you know, it, it exploded. Now it's redefining every business on the planet. But it wasn't new. A lot of those algorithms were there, but they didn't have the infrastructure. We didn't have everybody online connected. We weren't able to gather this big data, right? And the analytics and all to feed this AI, to make those algorithms really produce valuable results. So these things take time. The transistor, again, the transistor mm -hmm. revolution, decades before you know, we saw it in the PCs and everything we do now where we're totally dependent on it. So R&D invention, takes usually if it's core technology it takes a long time but once it hits once that core technology and all the pieces come together that's where the entrepreneurs jump in and they start saying we could do this with it we could do that with it we could apply this to, to this problem we could, you know we could make a lot of money by you know doing you know solving this or creating that that is innovation got you okay so moving on one one other thing that you know now that we are on the topic of startups one thing that comes to my mind is uh a lot of today, especially, there's an explosion in the number of startups. Like you name it, there's yeah. a startup for it, and there's so much competition. There's not enough domain names left, right? There's so right. There's not, not much domain. Well, there's not much internet space left, and we're kind of quickly running out of names. Uh, and it, it, along those lines, I would like to talk about in your book, yeah, Surviving a Startup, you kind of recommend finding the real reason to launch the startup. And this seems a little bit contradictory because as I was saying, like today, most startup launch, like you have an idea and I believe is going to solve a problem and it's going to make me a lot of money. And, you know, I'm going to make this company and probably so eventually know, sell off to so some, some other bigger company. How, how do you, how do you kind of connect with that type of mindset, which is, in my view, at least in the in the most recent times, is the root of, I don't want to call it a problem, but it's kind of the root cause of all the startups that are coming up. So what I see in the world is that a lot of, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs, hundreds, like every year. And a lot of entrepreneurs get this epiphany, this idea, like in their head that they, this idea is going to change the world. But really that idea is just in their head. They haven't brought it out into the world. So the idea itself is usually not as important as the journey that they are about to embark on. And I will give you some examples. Like people come up with ideas all the time that I see, and the idea seems great, 
But when they go into the real world, they find out, wow, this doesn't work. And they end up doing something entirely different. And that's the thing that actually creates the big change. So I view the idea as just a starting point of a journey that you're going to go on, a journey of discovery. And that journey is really dependent on taking your idea into the world and then seeing you know, what the world really needs and the real world really is waiting to happen. And how do you do that? Like if I'm a startup, I have this idea or I'm not even a startup. I just have an idea and I want to just go and blow up the world. Like what is my first step in order to test and validate this idea? So I would say your first test before you do anything is throw away the idea. So like, because I see, <laughs> no, honestly, like it, it's totally counterintuitive. Like I think the ideas actually limit you at the beginning because a lot of people get boxed in by their idea. They, they fall in love with it and then they go out into the world, but they refuse to see the, what's really happening. And okay. they try to sell people on their idea. And the majority of startups we know fail. Okay, so I'd like to break down the term idea. Okay. Is the idea a hypothesis? Is the idea a goal? Or is the idea a solution or is it like a pathway? Usually what's, what's going on in their head is what, what is that idea? Usually the idea is I'm going to build this product because I think the world really needs it. And, and a lot of times they make the mistake of jumping in and, and spending money and time building something only to bring it out into the world and find there's no fit. There's what we call (laughs) no product market fit. Nobody really cares that they built that. That's why most startups fail, period. Like that's the number one reason. Mm-hmm. So what I tell entrepreneurs is don't build anything. Don't fall in love with your idea. In fact, pick a direction, an area you're really interested in. Say like it's the fishing industry. And I want to make the, the fishing industry more efficient. I want to have less bycatch, you know, out there. So less, you know, so we and stop overfishing. How can I apply new technologies? AI, blockchain, you name it, technologies out there, IoT, to this problem that will make a difference in the industry. Now, I, being outside the industry, have an advantage is that I will try stuff that people inside the industry may never try because mm-hmm. they don't think of it. They don't think it's possible. If they're not focused on it. They have their own biases. But at the same time, I have a disadvantage in that I'm not in the industry. Like, I don't know. Like, I may come up with a great solution to stop bycatch. But the industry just doesn't care. Like they're like, whatever, it costs too much money. We, you know, we don't care if all these extra fish die. Like we're just going to keep doing it. So what you really need to figure out is can I can I go into the space with whatever ideas I have? I might have multiple ideas and then start engaging with the people in the industry. And I see the entrepreneurs' number one job, number one job, more than anything, is not to build the product at the beginning, not to go raise capital at the beginning, but to hunt for demand. Where is there pent up demand in, the, in that marketplace, whatever marketplace it is that you are going into, that you can actually then tap into. And then that, if the demand is big enough, it becomes the gusher that turns these little companies of a few people into these unicorns, you know, growing like mm-hmm. crazy. Crazy. It's, yeah. I, I also have something I like to tell entrepreneurs, and that is you can never create demand. You may build the best darn product in the world. It may be the most brilliant idea you've ever come up with, and it may be perfect with every feature you could ever imagine. But if there's not a demand out there for what you've built, you have nothing. Okay. And, and, and how do you well, look for that demand? That, that's probably the other part of the puzzle, right? Yeah. Okay. I, I hear you. I, I see that there's an opportunity that I need to tap into and build a solution that's going to solve the problem for that herd or that group. How do you find these opportunities? There are two ways. So one way is you, you are the customer. Like, you mm-hmm. know, like, hey, I need this. I'm an engineer. You know, I need to communicate with my other engineers. I don't have a, a good way of doing this. I'm going to hack this together. That's what they did at Slack. It was an yeah. internal tool. They built, the engineers built so that they could be more efficient. They were actually the company, like so many companies, was doing something entirely different. They were launching a game. The game failed. <laughs> the game did not succeed. And then they looked back and they said, well, we have this really cool tool we built for mm-hmm. engineers to communicate. What if we productize that? That was, mm-hmm. they built it for themselves. Number two, if it's not for you, if it's in another industry, which is often the case, you literally need to go out and get inside the heads of your potential customers. So number one, identify the customers. Who, who are the people you want to sell to? Number two, go 
and really don't try to sell them on your idea. Listen to them. Like, what problems are they having? What's keeping them up at night? What do they want more of? What I always tell entrepreneurs, figure out their top three priorities. Literally, what are the things that, that they just, either a pain point that they're just like driving them nuts or something in their business that they really, really need? Like, we need to double our revenue growth. How can we do that? Give us any way to do that. We'll come after you. You know, or we really want to make this factory more efficient or less prone to maintenance or errors, whatever it is. Figure out their top three priorities because if it's not in their top three priorities, we all know it's not worth it. Yeah, they won't. Well, they won't call you back. Yeah. They'll be, yeah. you know, I've had entrepreneurs go out there. They've talked to a hundred potential customers. All the customers like, oh, that's nice. You know, that's great. Come back when you build it. Come back when it's done and show it to us. That's the kiss of death. You know, you can get a hundred. That's nice, but nobody ever buys a product that's nice. We all buy a product that we absolutely love. Absolutely. Absolutely need, you know? Okay. So I I got a question on demand and and being analytics today, you know, we want to know about numbers and analytics. When you talk about driving demand, let's talk about, you know, average uh, maturity curve, right? You're talking about crossing the chasm, you know, early majority, and you're talking about, um, you know, that first 15% before you hit the, the chasm, it's like, they just, it's easy to fall in that first 10 to 15%, like Simon Sinek said, right? Anybody will take the first 10 to 15%. I'm that guy. I'm the guy who stands um, in on, in line to buy an iPhone because I'm just special like that, right? I, I will stand there. <laughs> early I, adopter. Yeah. I'm yeah. an absolute early adopter. And, and I'm just, I have problems, but I love it and I accept it. So it's one of those things when you talk about demand, creating demand, are you targeting me, the early adopter? Or are you crossing the chasm into the early majority when you talk about demand? Or is it really in an MVP stage? that first three to 5%. So when you are going out there, mm-hmm. there's sort of a rule of thumb. You don't need everybody to love your product, especially at the early stage. If it's an MVP or even you know uh, a prototype, something early, even a PowerPoint pitch that you're trying to convince them that this could be the next thing, you don't need everybody to uh, care about it. But you do need, uh, let's say, around 20% of the people you talk to to really fall in love with it. Like there's a difference. Like if people like a product, it almost never matters. Just like iPhone apps, we download a ton of them. We're like, oh, that's nice. (laughs) You know, a week later it's forgotten or deleted. (laughs) We just don't care. Like there's a lot of nice- And they're all tracking you, which is- Yeah, yeah, but but, yeah, we leave them on there and then eventually we delete them. That's what people do. But then those those few apps that they go, oh my God, I've been waiting for this to come along. Like, you know, I- this is amazing. Then you use that all the time. So you need to get that reaction out of a sizable portion of the people you are targeting. And then you need to extrapolate from that. Are there enough other people like that? If I capture, you know, how many other people like that are Mm -hmm. there out there? If it's very, very, very niche, you know, you're going to have a very, very, very small business. But Mm -hmm. if it's, there's a lot of other people potentially out there, you can start to size the market and say, this is real. Like we have something. Okay. So let's talk about this. So let's say your business is going and everything's going great. You have, everybody has ebbs and flows, right? Samir and I have done business together. Some have done well. Some we thought about, should we shut down and go do something else? You know, it's all those different things. At what point do you decide? Like, is there, is there, uh, you know, is there a signal where you're walking down the street and light bulbs start to like flash and turn off? It's like, oh my God, that's telling me something. Um, is there a rationale? Is there a data point? Can you tell us, is there a qualitative or quantitative reason? What is it? How do you know? Here's, here's my rule. Sure. Um, I have a lot of entrepreneurs who come to me like, and they have been working on these projects. They have put their, their sweat, blood and tears, everything on the line for these products. Uh, They, they come to me and they're like, Captain Hoff, you know, I don't know. Like, this is so hard. Should I quit? And I'm supposed to answer that for them (laughs) (laughs) after all, you know, it's their life. And you know what I tell them every time now, because I've learned, I say, absolutely quit, quit right now, quit today. Is it pure sarcasm? Pure sarcasm? No, I am honestly telling them to quit. Very cool. Why would I tell them to do that? Because no entrepreneur would come to you. Because entrepreneurs never want to quit. Like they have, they've invested so much Stubborn, into burn stubborn like, people. Yeah. They would, by the time an entrepreneur comes to you and asks you 
to quit. They're asking, they're telling you it doesn't work, but they don't want to admit it. They want you to push them to make the right decision because yeah. they know it's not working. Like it's like <laughs> Sisyphus. They're rolling that mm -hmm. boulder up the hill and it's just coming down. They've added features. They've changed things. They've gone, you know, they've done a billion things, but they're, oh, yeah. the customer doesn't care. So I'm right like 99% of the time when I tell them, absolutely, you should quit. And by quitting, I mean, don't stop being an entrepreneur. I mean, just refocus, like pivot, like maybe go work else. for somebody else. Yeah. Maybe go yeah. work for somebody else. And, and, and rather than be a leader, be a, be a supporter, be a part of a team. Because at the end of the day, what I like to explain to people is being an entrepreneur is not always about being the CEO or the head honcho. Sometimes being an entrepreneur is being a part of an amazing team that has a great idea. And you don't always have to be the number one guy in order to make things happen. I, I write about this in my book, Surviving a Startup Too. I'm like, <laughs> not everybody should be CEO. No. Like what you no. want, you want everybody in the best role possible. And it takes self-knowledge to do that. Like you have to know, like, where am I really good? Am I really good technically? Am mm. I really good like at leading people? Am I really good at, you know, analytics and Maybe stuff you're like an operations list guy. Maybe you need the CEO or whoever the idea person right. is. You got to make sure they, let me use a little bit of profanity. You got to make sure they keep their shit together, right? Because sometimes they're all over the place and their brain's going a thousand miles a minute. And you have to have that 10 minute daily stand up every morning to say, here's what's on, here's what's on the, the docket. We got to do these 10 things today. And if you're not there, the company is going to fail. Exactly. And you know, yeah. a lot of people have different personalities. Some people can't handle stress. No. Some people aren't <laughs> flexible. Like they just, they, they want routine. Yeah. If you're one of those people, if you're a coder, even in a very dynamic startup, you can have structure things. So it's very routine, but if you're the CEO, it's going to, it's always chaos. Like it's chaos <laughs> and it's always time. stressful and you probably won't be very happy or very effective in that no. role. So yes, people not everybody should be CEO. You can be a, do an amazing thing and be and have an amazing experience as a, in a supporting role, co-founder or an early employee. Absolutely, you should you should think about who you are and remember the startup's chance of success goes way up if everybody's in the right role. Like if you have, and I'll tell you, the CEO is the most important role. If you don't have the right person in that role, it's just a dysfunctional machine. Interesting. And, and speaking of that, like, you know, when, when you look at the two different dynamics, like one part is, uh, I would like to understand from you, like, how do you uh, create a foolproof startup launch on a bootstrap budget? And then the other part is uh, kind of the question is, uh, when you look at uh, multiple startups, and obviously you've looked at hundreds of them, and you come across failed startup, what is a common one common theme uh, that populates and say, okay, this is the reason why this startup failed. And that's probably one of the top reason and, and one of them that you alluded to. And how do you avoid that trap? So it's a kind of a two-part question I would like you to answer. So the word foolproof is impossible, like in a startup, like it is impossible awesome. to do a foolproof anything like you, <laughs> because you're scrappy, you're trying to get things together, even big corporations, they never do anything foolproof. Like they're, <laughs> like they're getting hacked all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, I launched one of my early startups and we were like, it was this interactive TV show for MTV. We were, you know, we had, they had paid us money. They had basically helped us bootstrap the startup by closing the deal. And it was synchronizing online uh, games to TV broadcasts, like perfectly frame accurate sync. Nobody knew if this would work at the time. This was like the, the, the 90s, like nobody knew. And they were so nervous it would fail. We launched it. We tried to do everything possible because, you know, our whole company was on the line for this. We would just be out of business if this launch, our first product didn't work on live on television across America. So we launched it. Five minutes into the show, the whole thing crashed. The entire thing crashed. Wow. The, the senior vice president of MTV calls me up and he is using every swear word you could imagine <laughs> yeah. what the blank is going on here you, <laughs> us to, you know we took a chance on you i was like just give me a minute let me talk to my engineers go to my engineers i'm talking you know i get them on the phone and like talking to them and they and they actually said you know it's it's a denial of service attack oh my god 
Yeah, and this was the 90s. We didn't have, you know, any of these sophisticated you know, uh, security sophisticated systems. platforms, <laughs> yeah. you know, out there to, to stop these. So they literally start, you know, manually started blocking IP addresses. And, and within a couple minutes, they had found it, they had blocked it, we were back up. So it worked, but nothing is foolproof. Like nothing. <laughs> I will just tell you, you can think of, try to think of everything and, you know. You, you, I like that mindset. You know, if you go in the mindset of like, hey, nothing is foolproof, then it doesn't matter what comes to you and you're prepared for it. Yes. Yeah. So you just have to be prepared to roll with the punches. That's what doing an entrepreneur, yeah. that's what doing a startup. I go, uh, you know, every day, it's, if it's not one thing, it's another going wrong. Like every day, yeah. you know, it's an employee. That's a problem. It's, you know, well, you're running about out of problems. money. Let's what? talk about problems. So for me, let's talk about problems. So one of the questions I have is let's, let's talk about red flags. So when you approach a startup and let's say in the first five minutes or in the first week of working with them, tell me some red flags, you know, is there something that really always stands out like a common red flag or do you look for the red flag or what is it? So there are a lot of red flags. So awesome. if I go up to a CEO and I, I, say, ask the CEO, so who's your customer? And they say, and they don't have a, a, a precise answer. Blue like ocean. The, C, the CEO says, you know, women are my customers. And I'm like, women, what type of women? Like, are they teenage women? Are they, you yeah. know, professional women? Are they housewives? What type of women are your customers? Yeah. So if they don't have a precise answer, if they haven't figured it out exactly, red flag. If, if I, go to, um, I'm talking to an entrepreneur and they, and I figure out that they're not telling the truth, that they're bullshitting me, huge red flag. <laughs> you know, I just want to walk away. If I look at the team and the team is subpar, like they, they didn't really get the best of the best, mm -hmm. you know, in order to succeed in this world, it's hyper competitive. Like you have to have an A team. And if you chose B and C players, you know, just because they were available and put them on your team, you know, I brought well, along your best friend just because they've supported you, you know, morally this whole time. Yeah. And they don't really have the qualifications. They aren't really. So looking at their team, you call really it the close, gang. <laughs> yeah. Looking at the team or other people are just desperate. They'll just take whoever they can thinking, oh, that'll be good enough. It's never good enough. Like yeah. you need the really great team because execution is a big part. You know, you can have the most brilliant idea in the world. And if you don't have a great team, you're going to drop the ball. Like you're going to fumble the ball and somebody else with a better team is going to pick it up and run with it and score. This happens over and over again. It's not always the first startup to get mm -hmm. out there. Google, like they weren't the first, they were like the 19th search engine to enter the market, yes, but they yeah. had figured it out. Like They figured it out and they just rocketed past all those other search engines that we don't even remember anymore. They're gone. The InfoSeeks of the world, yeah. <laughs> all yeah. the Vistas of the world. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so that's another one. And there's also, if I go to them and I was like, how does your product compare to your competitors? They tell me we have no competitors. Ah, oh, big red flag. Big like red you, flag. People are doing this some way. Like there's nothing that's absolutely new there. You know, people need to get done what they get done. They might not be doing it efficiently or in the way you can do it, but there are competitors out there. You need to tell me, you need to figure this out. I actually want to see an entrepreneur that, knows their competitors' products inside and out that uses them. Like everybody on the team uses their competitor products all the time. So they didn't know exactly what their competitors are doing. Yeah. And the really fact there's well. no competitor, like that means there's, there's no demand and going to your earlier right, point. That's like, a whole other no thing. Right. Not there's <laughs> only two reasons there's no competitors, right? <laughs> because you haven't looked or you're lying to me or they don't, you, there is no demand, right? <laughs> People just don't need this. Tons of red flags out there. <laughs> is, is there like a... It, is there an ideal personality that you look for in a team? Is, is it eager? Is it cocky? Is it reserved? Is it um, overly um, skeptical and testing? Is there any kind of, or is it all, all around? Is it? I look for people that are super curious, like as a CEO, they're always asking questions. They're like, why are people doing it this way? Why couldn't we do it different? Sure. You know, they're really, they're always gathering data. I look for people who have a, some sense of charismatic leadership, some leadership ability, like people want to follow them. They will, that's why the team is important. Like you want a, a team, you need to get people who could be working at Microsoft or Google or Facebook sure. to walk away from six figure jobs and join you. Well, you gotta have something there. <laughs> like it, it, it isn't always, it's just an idea isn't enough.
there, um, I also look for people who have in their past uh, stuck with something and solved something really hard. Like, like they figured something out. They've shown me, look, I figured this out. Might not have been a big business, no. you know, but they did it. They like made that. And they, if they can show that to me, then I'm, I'm much more likely to invest. So those are kind of the top three things I will look for. Okay. And so let's talk about memory. Like you said, going to Google and do a startup. The question is, there's a lot of people that actually ask Samir and I, and Samir and I have been in actually conversations with each other. We're like, you know, both of us work in corporate, large, extremely large enterprises. And we've taken the, we've, we've always had those conversations with startups where they're like, Hey man, come on board, help us out. And all these things. And we, we haven't made the big leap yet, but it's just one of those things to where if somebody is working for a large enterprise or they're out there and they have the choice, they have the offer from a mid-sized company or a large known enterprise being a small fish in a big pond, or they have the chance to go in with something like director level and above, which kind of sometimes doesn't mean anything in a startup, right? And they can be a big fish in a small pond. What should you look for before accepting the job? Is what, What's your advice? I advise people on this a lot. Okay. So I, I tell them, and this is really, everybody should listen to this. If you're going to join a startup and you're really smart, don't join it at the beginning. Like, <laughs> most yeah. startups fail. Okay. Like if you, unless you, unless you just don't care, like you're willing to take this crazy, it's like going to Vegas. Like I'm going to hit the, the lottery, but most likely whatever startup you're joining, because there's so many unknowns, there's so many things that are fragile personality startups can disintegrate for a million reasons. But where, what point of that startup, if you don't mind real fast. So if you join pre-series A, okay. you're taking a big risk. Now series okay. A is when the institutional venture capitalists come in with millions of dollars. Post series A is, you know, series A and, and beyond starts to get really good. But okay. the sweet spot, the spot where you should join, like if you guys want to join a startup and have maximized the chance of success, the risk first reward, right? Is when they close, just when they close their series B. Yes, when they close B. their series okay. B means that's their second big institutional round. That means the first one, they don't always have traction. They haven't always figured it out. There's still a reasonable chance they will fail. By the second one, they're getting that second round. They've usually figured it out. Everything has come together. You can see, you look at the startup, you see that startup growing. Like it is just growing. They're hiring. They actually have real customers and they have so right. on. So right. It's just one of those things. Yeah. It's just all the venture money at that point is doing is adding fuel to the fire. Like just, like just acquire more customers, hire more people. You come in at that point, you get a decent equity. It's not going to be what you would have gotten earlier, but essentially this, this baby's on the road to IPO or acquisition. Like, because the thing is you're, you're in a large enterprise and you're taking away a 401k, you're taking away health benefits. You're taking away all these big things because you want that chance to go to a startup, but, but you don't, it could, yeah, you, you don't give those up at the series B. You get amazing health benefits. Yes. You get free meals. You get like a great salary. Yes. You get decent stock options. And you get this rocket ship you're on. So yes, just time it right there. If you go later than Series B, then you're getting a lot more dilution, right? So yeah. Series B is that sweet spot. Okay, very cool. Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, the, the last question, I know we're running out of time, you just want to wrap up, uh, is one, one thing we always ask our guests, and first off, like Steve, this has been fascinating. I think our, our guests will really, really, Listeners will really, really enjoy it and they'll have a lot of fun with it. And we learned a lot from it. So kind of at the closing end, uh, share us one thing that you have never shared before about yourself, about your company, anything that you'd like to share. So I share a lot about myself. So <laughs> what could I share? I, I will share a little uh, tidbit that uh, people might not know that I usually don't share. So I'm a gamer. Captain Hoff is my gamer handle. And mm -hmm. my favorite game is a classic real-time strategy game called <laughs> Company of Heroes. So awesome. that is, uh, that's my favorite game. I'm a real strategy gamer. Very cool. So let, let's do this. Let's go ahead and wrap up. Um, I, I got one final thing that we always like to do with our guests before we wrap up. Um, one piece of advice. If you were to give the young entrepreneur person looking to get into the field and do something, what is that one just piece of solid advice that you can give them? The best piece of advice 
I could give anybody who's beginning, you know, who wants to take that leap is just do it. Like go, don't be afraid. Like there are many choices you can make in life and you never know the answers, but there's really no wrong choice because our lives, you know, I look back on my life and all those things that I thought were so important that I'd, I'd screwed up or that, you know, drove me crazy. They don't even matter. Like after a year, you don't even yeah. remember them. So don't worry about it. Just do it and enjoy that crate, whatever happens. And then do, you can always do something else. As long as you're alive, as long as you're breathing, you can do something else. Absolutely. This is very cool. So um, yeah, Samir had some technical issues, so he had to jump off in the video, but this is, uh, he's still on, but this has been absolutely amazing. Still here. <laughs> yeah, I'm hey, not on the video though. <laughs> yeah, you're, 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 hey, you're, Samir. You're right. in the cloud somewhere, right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, but this has been absolutely fantastic. I think this is one, my most favorite podcast I, I remember in the last few years, um, your energy, your passion, your accomplishments has been fantastic. And you're not the traditional guy who said, yeah, I just, you know, I have a bunch of money. I decided to go and help out all these companies and no, no, you, you took the different route and, and I love it. And I think our listeners are going to love this. Um, right. as a reminder, we, I think Samir and I are now getting a call a week or at least two emails a week on, on uh, guests who want to come on board. So please remember to reach out to us for that. Um, uh, check out our, our YouTube channel uh, where we're listed everywhere. Um, and this has been fantastic. Captain Hoff, this is awesome. Oh, real fast. If somebody, there's got to be somebody who's going to want to reach out to you and ask you questions. What is their best method to do that? Yeah. If you want to reach me, submit your business plan. We have tons of uh, free videos and educational materials. Okay. Just go to founderspace.com. Founderspace.com. That's not rocket science. That's pretty That's easy. not rocket science. And, <laughs> and we do respond to all our emails. So you okay. will get a response. Founderspace.com. So thank you again. Thank you guys for joining us.